Father, we worship you this morning. We praise you that you are a promise-making God who keeps his promises. You accomplish your will. And those promises come out of a, a good and kind heart. And Jesus, for the rest of this morning, we want to put you and the, the Father and the Spirit on display. Open our eyes. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just tell you, I, I told you that last week that my uh, brain hurt. And so, yes. Um, and so, I tried to take something that, I, we had a board meeting this, this past Tuesday, and I sent some of the stuff to the board members of what I was looking at, just to research all this stuff, to give you an, an understanding of the, what we've been studying as we look at the end times and kind of what the Bible says about the future and everything. And um, I had to take it and, and dumb it down for myself because I figured that if at least I understand it, then you can understand it, okay? And so um, this is more of a teaching time. And so if you have any questions, I'll do this a little differently this morning. Just raise your hand, okay? I want to make sure you're following me on this. But what we've been looking at is what the Bible says about, we talked about the beginnings and looked at Genesis, so now we're going to look at, at the end, and we've been in Matthew chapter 24, and we've been going over this um, for the past few weeks, this whole idea of what the future holds, and as you can see right here in Jesus, there you go, Lloyd, I'm talking, Lloyd, Matthew 21, 1 through 11 and everything, his first coming, okay, it was over 2,000 years ago. And then the time that we are in now, this time of the Gentiles, as you can see down here, and then from a, what is called a dispensational uh, eschatology. And what does eschatology mean? Study the end times. So the dispensational, what I mean by that is, is that is a, a way of understanding the Bible. Okay? It was popularized in the 1830s by John Nelson Darby. It's very popular today. It's, it's relatively new. But if you were to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, for example, uh, you would be trained to study the Bible through uh, dispensations. And a dispensation really means a, a period of time or an epoch, E-P-O-C-H, or an age. Okay? And what is unique about dispensations is that they are not continuous. They don't build on each other. For example, you see right here, time of the Gentiles, this is the time that they say we're in right now. Well, this stops right here when they say a rapture occurs and we're taken up to heaven. And then God resumes his dealing with Israel. So he's working one way here, and now he's no longer working with the Gentiles. Now he's going to go back to working with Israel, the Jews. So they don't build on each other. Okay? Now, the Left Behind series, the movies, the books, they all come from a dispensational study of the end times, but it's really just a, a way of understanding uh, the scripture or the way they, they structure it. Now, just to give you a brief reminder, here are some distinctives about this dispensational end times uh, study, that there are distinctive divine programs for Israel and the church. They separate Israel and the church, okay? Based on the idea of a prophetic and historical gap between Daniel 9.26 and 9.27. Uh, Daniel's 70th week, which is right here. Okay, you can see that right here. It's also called a great tribulation. Daniel's 70th week is also called a time of tribulation or great tribulation. This is where they say all the bad stuff in the Bible happens. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That's where all this happens, they say. Okay. I think that you guys are familiar with that, right? We've been over this, and it's what you've also... It's very popular in, for today's study. Okay. They believe that there's a rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem at the inception of this seven-year period and its subsequent destruction, and this would happen here. This is when the temple would be rebuilt, right in this time frame, the first three and a half years, okay? Because there's going to be an abomination that causes desolation, which is what we've been studying, and that is when an individual, the Antichrist, 
will set himself up to be God. He'll stop the worship and the sacrifice of animals, and he will demand that he be worshipped. That unleashes most of and the intense earthquakes and false prophets and false Christs and all of that stuff, okay? All right? So, again, the emergence of a personal antichrist who will establish a seven-year covenant with Israel, reinstitute the Levitical sacrificial system, only to break the covenant after three and one-half years. Uh, and these next two points are critical. Uh, there's a precise chronological or numerical interpretation of Daniel 9, 24, and 27. We'll get to that in the sermon this morning, okay? And the final point is that the 70 weeks of Daniel begins, as quoted in Daniel 9, 25, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes in 445 or 444 B.C., and Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, describe that, okay? Now, we've gone over that uh, last week, the brief reminder, any questions about that? It's, it's very popular, and it's easiest to understand, okay? Good. Now, what I want to do is I want to take you to what has been more of an historical understanding, because again, when was this popularized? Mid-1800s, by John Nelson Darby, okay? And... Um, let me just say this as well, if we go back to the sixth point here. Um, yeah, verse 25 of Daniel 9 indicates that between the decree and the coming of the 69 of the 70 weeks transpire, there's a, a delay. And so they break it down to the 483 years, they break it down to days, to 173,880 days using a 360-day calendar. And if you begin with the first of Nisan, which is a Jewish month, which for us is March 14th, in 445 B.C., and you count off 173,880 days, okay, and throw in the extra day for leap years, you arrive at April 6, 32 A.D., and that was what? Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, okay? And many people are obviously quite impressed with this sort of chronological precision, okay? I remember reading it and being impressed, okay? And they therefore have embraced the dispensational view of the end times because of it, okay? So it's a very specific, clear, okay? I put a lot of these verses up there. I'll, have, I'll direct you in your Bibles where I want you to go. But again, I want to switch things up for this sermon and I'm going to start with a little humor here. If we can get that first video ready, David, and put it, I'll tell you when to play it. Um, this is an older video from Saturday Night Live. Okay? You have it up there? Do you not have the video? We're ready? I want you to put it up there, and I'll tell you when to play it. Okay? This is from Saturday Night Live from 1976. Now, I know we're an older congregation, so some of us were alive at that time. And it's a presidential debate between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. And it's played by Chevy Chase is Gerald Ford, who they portray him as a bumbling idiot. And you have the wacky um, President Jimmy Carter played by Dan Aykroyd. And this is a, a presidential debate. This is one of the questions that was asked, okay? And it's very key to understand this, and it ends up being one of the funniest lines in all of Saturday Night Live. So go ahead and play that right now. Ms. Montgomery, a question on economics. Yes, uh, Mr. President, you said that the Humphrey Hawkins bill will cost a possible $60 billion, but isn't it true that the jobs provided by the bill will create up to $150 billion in increased production? Using Walter Heller's figure that for every 1% unemployed, there is a resulting $37 billion loss in GNP. Now, at the present rate of taxation of, on GNP of 39%, doesn't this come to about the same $60 billion in increased revenue? It was my understanding that there would be no math <laughs> during the debates. <clears throat> now, I, I am prepared to answer any domestic 
uh, questions, perhaps something about me and Betty. <laughs> Excuse me again, my fellow Americans. Mr. Burke. Okay. It was my understanding that there would be no math. You guys remember that line, anybody? Okay, you're going to repeat it after me, right? It was my understanding there would be no math. And this line turned out to be one of the most famous lines and memorable lines in Saturday Night Live history. And so for the rest of this sermon, we're going to go through the ninth chapter of Daniel. I want you to remember one thing. No math. No math. Okay? The dispensational perspective requires math. Okay? And so if you're not a math person, you're like, okay, I like this already. All right? So I want you to stop your brain from interpreting Daniel chapter 9 chronologically or numerically. And I want you to start to interpret it within its context and symbolically. I will explain as I go along. So fasten your seatbelts. Return your tray tables to their locked and upright positions as we begin our descent into one of the most important prophecies in the entire Bible. Now, a little brief history. Before we get to Daniel chapter 9, I want you to look at this verse right here. There it is. At the base of Mount Sinai, Israel entered into a covenant with God. Okay? It is recounted in Exodus. Okay? I want to read to you uh, the commandment from God. This is what it says here. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord. So he comes down the mountain and recounts all these things to the, to the people from the Lord. And all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. They are entering into a covenant with God saying we will do our part. Okay? Now, verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Okay? And the terms of this covenant that they entered into at the base of Mount Sinai were laid out in the form of laws. Okay? Now, one of the curses is if the people did not obey the Lord, they would be uh, sent into captivity by a foreign nation. And it's described here in Leviticus 26, 17. I, the Lord, will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. I mean, the Lord is against you now, and he will send you into captivity, okay? And what that meant was when you, at that point in time in history, were sent into captivity, what do you think it meant for the people? What would happen to them? They'd be slaves. What else? They would take their children, violate their wives, kill the men, destroy the homes, indoctrinate the children into their new culture, which is what Daniel went through, all of that. These nations were, are considered the servants of the Lord, and God would judge those nations for the things they did, but he was bringing them into the lives of his people because of the covenant that they had entered into with God. Okay? And so that's what would happen. One of the things. So also famine, pestilence, those are some of the things. Now, if you didn't know this, for 23 years, God sent Israel prophets who called the people to repentance and a return to God. You can read that in Jeremiah 25, 3 and 4. I don't think I put that up there. No, I didn't. But the people wouldn't listen. So God acted in accordance with the covenant he entered into with Israel during the time of Moses on Mount Sinai. And Israel was taken to captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 605 B.C. Okay, you can read that in Jeremiah 25, verse 1 and 9. Now Daniel and his friends were deported to Babylon. You can read that in Daniel chapter 1. 
That is the context of Daniel chapter 9, okay? Now, get your Bibles out, turn to the book of Daniel. Does that put it up here or not? I messed this up. Anyways, you get the idea. Just go to Daniel chapter 9. All right? Everybody there? I did not put Daniel 9 up there. I'm not going to read. Through. We're going to go through the whole chapter real quickly. Okay? So you got to get in your Bible or on your phone. It says, in the first year of Darius, this is the New American Standard Version. Some of your versions may say Xerxes, the son of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, of Median descent, was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In other words, the Chaldeans are who? The Babylonians. So what's happened? They've been conquered by the Medes and Persians. This is in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel reads in the first year of Darius, which is, by the way, it really means it's the first year of Cyrus's reign. Okay? This is 539 to 538 B.C. That the 70-year judgment of desolations on Israel, according to the terms of the covenant that they entered with God, they were ending. It was nearly completed. Roughly 66 years have passed. That's 605 minus 539, okay? Now, what specifically did Daniel read to give him hope of restoration? This is why I messed up in this. I apologize. This is what he read, okay? You can read this up here if you want. I'll put this up on the screen from the book of Jeremiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. So what we see here very clearly is God is sovereign. He's using the nations to judge his people. And the things that they were going to do that we went through, that's considered a servant of God. And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing in an everlasting desolation. So let me just say right here on a separate note that when we blame God for things, that's fine. God owns it. He did this because of the sin of the people. They brought it on themselves. He's honoring the terms of the covenant. But he's not hiding from who's responsible for it. Look at verse 11. This whole land will be a desolation when you think of desolation, think of Lahaina, Hawaii, completely destroyed. That's what desolation means. And it's going to be a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Now notice this, it's just for 70 years. Okay? That's how long God gave Nebuchadnezzar to basically reign the entire world. If you go to here, you might recognize this verse. For thus says the Lord... Jeremiah 29, 10, 11, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, now watch this, and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. You see that? So at the end of 70 years, good things were going to happen. And of course, just so you know, I put this in here because this is a very popular verse, just so you know the context. For what? I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. This verse is claimed by I don't know how many people as a guarantee that I will have a, a blessed life. That is not the context, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it came as a result of what? <laughs> 70 years of intense suffering, which was followed by years, or pre preceding that, was years of just debauchery and evil and sinning against the Lord. So 70 years of judgment, now it's over. By my will, now I plan to bless you. Okay? I believe Daniel read that and it filled him with hope to pray for the restoration of Israel in Jerusalem. Again, according to the terms of the Mosaic covenant that he entered into, the people did, 
okay, at Mount Sinai. Do you remember that story, by the way? God is up in a cloud and smoke and fire and lightning on top of the mountain, and Moses goes up there, and he comes down, and he reads the law to the people. The people were so afraid, they stayed away from even the base of the mountain. But that's where all this happened. That's a covenant that God entered into with them. Now, what else did Daniel read? Let's look at, pick up Daniel 9, chapter 3. In light of reading this, this is what Daniel does. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your names to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now, Daniel didn't sin, but he's confessing the sins of his people. Verse 9, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Verse 12, Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what is done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. We have not obeyed his voice. Now, God takes ownership for what happened to the people, right? And yet Daniel views it as what? God is righteous. God is righteous. He doesn't blame him. Now, what you want to see here is that Daniel understands the law and the covenant. And that gives man great power. Do you understand that? It gives man great power. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if praying according to the covenant, which is the will of God, you're able to move God to do what? Honor the terms of the covenant. Is God honorable or dishonorable? So he's going to answer that prayer in his honor. His namesake is on the line. And you're able to move God to do things that, you know, and it's really one man right now that we're going to see has a tremendous impact. Okay, God works mightily through him. Now look at verse 4, okay? Daniel reminds God of the covenant, okay? Daniel describes God as the Lord who keeps the covenant, and that is the foundation of Daniel's confidence. He can boldly pray before the Lord. And his prayer is what? That God, just as you brought about the um, curses of the covenant, I'm asking you now to bring about the blessings of the covenant. Okay? Verses 5 through 14, they, Daniel simply is acknowledging that he and the people, not him particularly, but the people, the leaders, have broken the terms of the covenant. Let's look at verse 15 now, through 19. 
And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Verse 17, so now, O Lord, so now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, verses 15 through 19, Daniel is simply pleading and praying that God restore Israel and Jerusalem according to what? The terms of the covenant. Okay? Now, let's look at this verse right here. Here are the terms of the covenant found in Leviticus 26. Again, watch this. And Daniel knew this. Okay, he knew this. If they confess their iniquity... This is God speaking. In the iniquity of their forefathers, in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, God is saying, you are unfaithful to me, you're acting hostile towards me. What does God do? I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, i.e. captivity by another nation. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, now this is the good part, then... That's what I, a covenant is like a contract. You do this, then I do this. If you do this, then I do that. So they do this, repent, then God does this. I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I'll remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. Okay, he's going to honor his terms of the covenant because what is at stake for God? His name, he was known throughout the world at that time for what did he do? He brought the people out of Egypt. There was what? Ten plagues. Word travels. <laughs> A people miraculously brought through a sea. The destruction of Egypt, basically. All right? A fire at night cloud by day, protecting the people in the wilderness. There's a million men, so it's probably well, up to many, as 20 million people were, had left, were in the desert. And they survived it. And so God's name was at stake, his reputation. Okay? And that's what Daniel was appealing to. Alright? So what I want you to see here is that just from a context perspective, that the theme that pervades the entire chapter of Daniel 9 is God's covenant with Israel. You see that? Add the fact that Daniel uses the covenant names of God. When he says, oh God, oh Lord, he's using the covenant names Yahweh and Adonai. It reinforces this truth that this covenant is the, the dominating theme in Daniel chapter 9. And so the prayer is always to be interpreted through a covenant lens. <coughs> Okay? Now, any questions? Now, God responds to Daniel's prayer. Look at verse 20. Now, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Let me stop right there. The man Gabriel, what does that mean? Well, we know who Gabriel is. Who is he? He's not just an angel, folks. Who is he? He's an archangel. There were three archangels. Who were they? Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Lucifer now is Satan. Okay? But he describes him as what? 
a man. So I believe that Gabriel came to him in the form of a man, hiding his true power or veiling it so that he could actually be in the presence of Daniel. Verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So simply by following the terms of the covenant, Daniel's prayer was answered. You see that? No. Now, we know, we now come to the hard part of this. That's the 70 weeks of the Messiah. And I've studied uh, Kim Riddlebarger, uh, Samuel Storms, and a bunch of other stuff I've read. And so this information that I'm giving you, if you can stay with me for a few more minutes, is a, a reformed perspective of the end times. Okay? I gave you the dispensation perspective. We're going to look at the reform perspective. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Are we there? Okay. What is the purpose of the 70 weeks? We're going to answer these questions here. Well, it's, it's sixfold in nature. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision, prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay? Let me explain to you what those mean. And this is what covenant and theologian and, and, and they agree and sometimes disagree, but these are the general understandings of what these things mean. To finish the transgression. Now, we believe that that either happened at either Jesus' first coming, and that would have happened when? On the cross. He finished the end of sin, right? Or it will happen when? Because there's still sin today at his second coming. Got that? It could also mean both, though. What Jesus fulfilled at his first coming, he will consummate, bring to completion at his second coming. To finish a transgression, second thing is to make an end of sin. Again, either happened at his first or second coming, or again, what he started at his first, he'll complete at his second. The third thing is to make atonement for iniquity. And this is agreement between covenant and dispensational theologians. That is referring to Jesus' suffering on the cross. Okay? Number four. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, we think that that means that, that when are you made everlasting, when are, you, when are you given everlasting righteousness? Well, you're chosen in the eternity past, but the realization of that in your life is when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So you, it's either a reference to the justified state of the one who has faith in Christ, or we think it refers to when there is a new heaven and a new earth coming, okay? There will be what? No more sin, but righteousness only, okay? Everlasting righteousness. The fifth thing is to seal up vision and prophecy. Well, the visions which the prophets received and proclaimed, they say will be sealed up because it is no longer needed. Well, why? Because the Messiah has come and ushered in a new age. And then to anoint the most holy place, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the, the, the holy place the, was ever anointed, the temple. But what was anointed was who? Jesus. When? At his baptism. Okay? So those are the, that's the purpose of the 70 weeks. This time frame. Now, the next question is, when do the 70 weeks begin? That's verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now again, the most popular interpretation of this verse is the dispensational perspective. It states that the 70 weeks begins when? 445 B.C. with decree from King Artaxerxes, 
according to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. My question for you to wrestle with is this. Does this follow the context of Daniel chapter 9? Now, as I said, Jeremiah prophesied in 605 B.C. that Israel would be conquered. This is the year Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and it was given into his hand. You can read this in Daniel 1, verses 1 through 2. That happened in 605 B.C. The prayer of Daniel 9 <coughs> happens in the first year of Cyrus's reign, which is 539 B.C. That's 66 years later. You can read that in Daniel 9.1, which we just did. Now listen to this. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, confirm this. And I think I put this up here, so you can write this down. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, what year was that? What's the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia? I just explained this to you. 539 or 38 BC. That's 66 years after Jerusalem fell in 605. Okay, 605 minus 539. I said there'd be no math. I apologize. That's 66 years, okay? In order to, watch, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. So it's saying that in the first year of Cyrus, what was fulfilled? The word of the Lord, which was what? He is now ruling over who? Everything. The Lord struck the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So who has Cyrus conquered? Babylon. So you had Israel. They fell because of the... They failed to keep the terms of the covenant, judged by God, and he sent Nebuchadnezzar. And they ruled over him for roughly 70 years. It's not as precise, but it's roughly 70 years. It's 66 years that it comes down to. Okay? Now who's ruling? Cyrus. Okay? So therefore, that means that the reign of Babylon is over. So the 70 years roughly has ended. Okay? He's appointed me to build him a, see this? In 539 B.C., God has appointed me to build him what? A house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So start to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? This is repeated word for word in Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Okay? So this passage reveals that the reign of Babylon had ended. So Jeremiah's prophecy of captivity in Babylon had been completed. In that very year, this is very important, sensing the completion of Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel prays for the restoration of Jerusalem. We've just read that. Okay, you guys with me so far? Gabriel responds to Daniel's prayer with what? The prophecy of the 70 weeks. The beginning, which would be a decree to rebuild and restore the city. So when did this decree happen? 539 B.C. Not 445 B.C. Does that make sense? Well, there was a decree to do that in 445 B.C., but there was the first one in 539, 538 B.C., okay? And that's exactly what happened. In 538 B.C., history tells us that Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem according to Daniel 9.25. So the 70 weeks of Daniel 9.25 begins on what date, according to Reformed theologians? 539 to 538 B.C. I know this is new to most of you, but the logical conclusion from the context of this chapter is that the beginning point of the 70 weeks that God just decreed in Daniel 9.25, it coincides with the end of Jeremiah's 70 years. 
Does that make sense? I'm seeing a lot of blank faces. I know that this is new to you, okay? But so far, is there anything that I'm telling you that is not biblical? Okay? It's right there in the Bible. I'm giving you verses so you can see it. So I'm trying to give you a biblical and contextual understanding of Daniel 9. Now, who is the prince to come? Look at verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, the Messiah being cut off and having nothing, what do you think that's a reference to? It's the death of Jesus on the cross. Look at this. Well, I didn't put it up here. I thought I did. I did not. Write down Isaiah 53.8. I'll just read this to you. Isaiah 53.8. It's a description of a suffering servant. You'll recognize this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Remember, Jesus was oppressed and by ju- taken away to the cross. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom he, the stroke was due. So he is cut off. This is referring to the death of Jesus on the cross. So after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's what that's referring to, Jesus' death on the cross. So after the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay, what's going to happen? And the people of the prince who is to come, what are they going to do? Destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. What happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem? He died roughly in AD 33, 33 AD. In 70 AD, what happened to Jerusalem? It was destroyed. So roughly 37 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed, a fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, who destroyed it? The Romans, the general Titus, was put in charge, and his armies destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD. And I went over this before with you guys, but they built a siege around the city, and they just, for three and a half years, roughly, they wore down. It started in AD 66, and then they just conquered it, okay? Now, and by the way, on this point right here in verse 26... Uh, dispensational and Reformed theologians agree. This is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? So the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. This is the will of God for this to happen. Okay? Now, Where the dispensational theologians and the Reformed theologians disagree is the he of verse 26 and the he of verse 27. So let's go to verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will stop, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, will come one who makes desolate. There's abomination of desolation. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So is the he of verse 27 a future antichrist, as dispensationalists claim, or is it somebody else? Okay? Now you've been probably taught it's a future Antichrist. It's very popular to think that, okay? If he is a future Antichrist, then you have to insert a time gap between verse 26 and 27. Do you see that? All right? If the he is not a future Antichrist, then who is he? Now, Reformed theologians see no need to insert a time gap and that historically has been the position of the church because this time gap was inserted roughly in the mid-1800s by 
dispensational theologians, a brand new interpretation of this, okay? But Reformed theologians have said, okay, we're going to interpret verses 26 and 27 consecutively. I don't see anything in the context that says that there's going to be a future Antichrist. They wouldn't even known about that, okay? In fact, they see a parallel between the two verses. Now, the Messiah of verse 26a, okay? Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That's the 26a. You got that? That's the Messiah. So the Messiah of verse 26a equals the he of 27a. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, isn't that what Jesus did? Did he make a covenant with people? And he sealed it when? On the cross. Okay? Now, the prince of 26b, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay? Equals the one who makes desolate of verse 27b. Okay? And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Let me explain something here to you so you understand. What happened to the people, uh, the Jews, when Jesus Christ's death on the cross? Were they still sacrificing to animals? Sacrificing animals as part of their worship. Do you know when that ended? And it hasn't been done since then? In 70 A.D., when it was destroyed, there have been no more animal sacrifices, okay? Now, it was unnecessary when? 833 A.D., okay, but it went on for 37 more years, and God said, no more, it's done, okay? No more. So the he of 27b is the Roman general Titus, because he's the one who what? ended the animal sacrifices, okay? So the one who makes a firm covenant is Jesus, which is what he did in the cross through the shedding of his blood. And there are plenty of verses here, and you, you'll get the notes, but that's what he did in the cross. Now, finally, to what does Daniel refer when he speaks about Messiah putting a stop to sacrifice and grain offering? Well, I believe there are two possibilities. It's going to be a reference to the sacrifice of Christ, which I talked about, he ended the Jewish sacrificial system. This is why we no longer sacrifice animals. We don't shed their blood, because all it did was remind us of our sin. But the perfect sacrifice took away our sin. And who was that? Jesus. It was a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, more likely, the ending of the sacrifice of grain offerings is a stopping. It's talks about, that's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in 70 AD, again done by the Lord through the Roman army and General Titus. Understanding it this way, the prophecy of Daniel 9 was fulfilled then with the coming of who? I hope you would have this been an easy question. With the coming of who was the prophecy then fulfilled? Jesus. It was fulfilled, okay? He's the Messiah, the Prince. He made the covenant, okay? Now, I'm going to stretch you guys for another five minutes, okay? Because I need to understand something that was going on here, and, you'll, and so put a nice bow and wrap it all up. Of the 70 weeks to be interpreted chronologically, using math, or theologically, okay? Now, if the 70 weeks or the 490 years is to, be, you know, is to be applied with numerical precision, what is its significance? I mean, if it's not to be applied with numerical precision, what is its significance? In other words, what is the symbolic and theological meaning of the 70 times 7 units or 490 years? Now, again, I'm going to remind you, the word weeks means what? Sevens. So 70 weeks is 70 times 7. 70 times 7 is 490. So we think it's 490 years. Okay. Now, are, are we to actually interpret that chronologically, using math, or theologically? Okay. Now, 
when this was read to explain to Daniel, um, and when we read it, but when we read it, it seems foreign to us because we count time by tens. Meaning what? Ten years is what? hundred years is what? A century. But the Jews didn't count time that way. They counted time by Sabbaths. They were Sabbath-oriented, okay? They counted time by sevens. Every seven years, they had a year-long holiday in which the land rested. you remember this? Do you guys remember this? Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Any farmers in here, by the way? Anyone ever done this? We had some farmer friends, I think, do this. They have land that they use, and then they give it a break for a year. What happens during that year? The nutrients are fed back into it and becomes productive again. Okay. Now, not only that, every 49th year, the debts were forgiven, and people were released to return to their lands and their families. You read that right here. This is Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. It's too long, so I did it in two slides here. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely what? 49 years, okay? So you understand, Daniel understood this. So 70 times 7, 70 weeks would have meant to him 490 years or what? Sabbath years. What do they call it? You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad in the 10th day of the 7th month, because that's in the 49th year, in the 7th month of that year. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate what? The 50th year, and this is great. I wish it was this 50th year here because then we could all take a break, right? Because what do they do here? And proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. <clears throat> now watch this. They were farmers for the most part. He's telling them to do what? Take a year off. Who would like a year off? Okay? You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For as a jubilee, it shall behold you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. So, the 490 years, now stay with me here because we're almost done. It's not to be understood chronologically. It's my understanding that there would be no math. All right? Instead, it was to be understood as 10 jubilee years, 49 times 10. But there is more. It is not surprising that the 50th year, the year of jubilee, what's happening in that 50th year? People are what? But what else? They're released from their debts. They're restored to their lands. Okay? And they've been redeemed from being slaves. They're now free. Now, remember that. Release, redemption, and restoration. Got those three terms? In the Old Testament, when there, a lamb is an animal, but it was a picture or a shadow pointing to a future reality. In the New Testament, what is a lamb? Or who is the lamb? He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what does release, redemption, restoration point to from the Old Testament? Point to in the New Testament. It's a picture of what? Salvation. You're released from bondage, redeemed from your sin, and restored to the position you were supposed to be in from the very beginning. So Jubilee and that whole thing was a picture of salvation. Does that make sense? You follow me so far? That's how it's symbolically and theologically understood. It's a picture or a symbol of salvation, release, redemption, restoration. So the purpose of the 70 weeks prophecy, 
again, in Daniel chapter 9, particularly verse 24, it secured the ultimate salvation, the release, redemption, and restoration, which the Jubilee year was a symbolic picture. That happened when? At the cross. So in essence, this whole thing of, of, of jubilee, release, redemption, restoration, this is exactly what Jesus proclaims in Luke chapter 4. Turn there. It's too long of a verse. Everyone turn to Luke chapter 4. I want you to see this. Now, Jesus has just been baptized by the Holy Spirit. He was sent into the wilderness. He successfully endured his temptation, was victorious. And according to Luke, this is the very next thing that he records in the life of Jesus. The very first message that he preaches after this temptation. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. <coughs> and the people, by the way, were just in awe of him and were waiting and thinking this guy could be Messiah. And there was tension in the synagogue. They were waiting for him to do something miraculous. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And listen to this, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Obviously, the Holy Spirit just fell upon him. <coughs> His baptism. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Look at this. He has sent me to what? Proclaim what? Release to the captives. And what? Recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To what? Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Well, the favorable year of the Lord is what year? The Jubilee year. And he's proclaiming, <coughs> excuse me, release, redemption, and restoration. That's what he's referring to here. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixing him. And this is what he says. And you can't be any more clear on this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. You got that? So now, in essence, what was he saying, though? What Jesus declares that in himself the jubilee of God has come, he is saying, in effect, that the 70 weeks of Daniel had reached their climax right there. Okay? The new age of jubilee, of which all previous jubilees were pictures, point to a future reality, it is now dawned in the person and ministry of Jesus. Thus, the goal of the 70 weeks prophecy is to fulfill the jubilee salvation of God. So the meaning of the time frame, it's theological. It was never meant to be about numbers or chronology. Okay? It's a theological image, namely, that in Messiah Jesus... God will work to the effect to affect the final jubilee of redemptive history. His coming, his ministry, his death. So there's no more need for math. Okay? See, what Daniel, I'll close with this, what Daniel prayed was what in Daniel chapter 9? Please restore what? Israel. It meant that his understanding it meant what? The nation and the temple, and, and everything, to its former glory under, under David and Solomon, right? How does God answer that? I'm going to go way beyond that. I'm going to give you something even greater than that. The ultimate salvation. I will send my son, and when he comes in his ministry, there will be fulfillment of all these things. So now, I, there are, are, are minds far beyond mine on the dispensational side of things and the reform side of things. I wanted to give you both perspectives, okay? 
Either way, and I do thank the dispensational uh, preachers for this, they brought back to the, the, the church the study of the end times, which we need to be aware of, because Jesus makes it very clear. What is he looking for when he comes again? And I've told you this time and time again. He's looking for faith when he comes again. And that faith is demonstrated in people that are praying for what? His return, his second coming. Okay? And so we, well, how's it going to play out? Well, either there's going to be a future seven-year period, like the dispensations say, or there's not going to be. Okay? It's already been fulfilled, but he is still coming again. All right? Now, I know that this is not, it's probably new to some of you, probably to most of you. It was, in this detail, it was to, new to me, because I'd studied it before, but never this in depth. So I've taken these articles and these books and tried to simplify it so I understand it. I hope you understood what I taught this morning. I know it's been long. Um, I cut stuff out to get it down to this point. Do you have any questions about this? Or are you just so tired you want to go home? You want to go home, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll send out notes. And so I'll, I'll, I'll auction this off, this sermon. Anyone wants it? All right, you want it, Debbie? All right. So, yeah, I will send the last two sermons out because they're not easy to follow. But I want you to understand that, okay? Good. That's why I didn't put a fifth song in because it's already noon and it's already getting warm. And I want to let you guys go, okay? If you have any questions, feel free to ask anybody but me. All right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you that we have salvation in Jesus. And that's what I want us to do. Pray. Praise God for a salvation they offered through this ninth chapter of Daniel. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right. God bless you. Go cool off. It's hot in here.